Then Job answered today, also my complaint is bitter, his hand is heavy despite my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his dwelling. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, but he would give heed to me. There an upright person could reason with him, and I should be acquitted forever by my judge. If I go forward, he is not there. Or backward, I cannot perceive him. On the left, he hides, and I cannot behold him. I turn to the right, but I cannot see him. This is the word of the Lord. Last year, when I was working on sermon titles for this year, we had a meeting of staff to project calendar into 2009. And Dr. Pensera told us that he was anticipating that in late April, our chancel choir would do Felix Mendelssohn's Elijah. Um, when I read this text, I remembered what Dr. Pensera had said. When, when I was in high school, I was a part of a very good a cappella choir. And our choir was joined with the university choir from Stephen F. Austin University in Nacogdoches in a big Sunday afternoon presentation of Elijah, featuring the university orchestra as well. When I was in college, I had an opportunity to sing as a part of the chorus in, in Elijah. And when I was in the seminary singers, we also did Elijah. So when I read this passage, I remembered the tenor singing that beautiful, beautiful piece. You remember the story of Elijah, of course. He felt God had called him to take on the pagan gods and goddesses, Baal being the chief one. The northern kingdom's queen and king were evil, vile people. Queen Jezebel, her husband Ahab, had embraced these gods and goddesses of fertility. Elijah challenged them up on the top of Mount Carmel. Uh, his God, the only true God, was successful in lighting the fire around the altar where the gods of Baal had not been able to do that. Um, Elijah saw to it that these false prophets were all put to death. The blood ran down the side of Mount Carmel and into the Jezreel River, flowed right down past the palace of Jezebel and Ahab. She resolved that Elijah's blood would one time flow in the streets and the dogs would lick it up. So Elijah ran. He ran all the way from Mount Carmel, which is up near Haifa, all the way down to the Sinai Desert. He felt that he was absolutely alone, the only righteous man left in the whole world. The tenor sings, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come before his presence. And then in the upper registry sings, If with all your heart ye truly seek me, ye shall surely find me, thus saith your God. Let's take a look at this passage. Number one, these terrible things are happening to Job when Job is a good man. Really terrible things are happening to a really good man. Twice, right at the beginning of the book, God Almighty says of Job, He is blameless, upright, stands in awe of me, turns aside from every evil, and yet bad things happen to Job. He lost his sheep, donkeys, cattle, and camels. All ten of his children 
and then his own health. A good man with terrible things happening to him. I've been gone from Texas more than 28 years, as you know, but occasionally I see ministers from Texas. I was at a meeting with the pastor of one of the largest churches in Texas. They're on television every Sunday morning down there, as we are here. And I said to him, how have you been doing? He said, this has been the worst year in my life. I said, really? Yes, he said. I'd moved my mother here from the state from which she had come into Texas. He said, I moved my mother here and she really enjoyed Texas for several years. And then just a few months ago, she had a horrible stroke. Not able to say a word. Drool having been wiped off her chin. Horrible, he said. Two weeks later, one of my daughters, seven months pregnant, sat up in bed in the middle of the night, shook her husband, and said, something's happened. What, he asked. She said, something terrible has happened. He, a physician, what? What do, what do you think? What are you sensing? I need to go to the hospital. She said, I know, I need to go to the hospital. And so he dressed quickly and rushed her to the emergency room at the hospital, and they discovered that her baby had died. He said, we were still grieving that when I went for my annual physical and the doctor found I had an elevated PSA blood level. They did further tests and found that I had prostatic cancer. I had to have a radical prostatectomy. I was troubled with incontinence after it was over. I had to wear a plastic bag under my robe on Sunday mornings with a catheter drip dripping into that bag. I'm watching the clock back there for the television camera, and that bag is getting heavier and heavier and heavier. I said, I, I don't see how you've gotten through this. And he said, well, I've been preaching and teaching and doing funerals and doing weddings but I haven't spoken to the Lord in over six months. I just can't think of anything I have to say to Him right now. Number two, when bad things happen to good people, there are always fixers who rush in to help. Dr. Eugene Peterson says that sufferers attract fixers like roadkill attracts vultures. And these fixers often come misquoting, misusing the Word of God. And the way to tell if they are or not is that you feel worse when they leave than you did before they arrived. Job's comforters were not comforting him. Job's comforters said, we knew you were a good man, Job, because you had all this wealth and all these kids. But now that they've all been taken away, we know you did something wrong. Fess up. What was it? I don't think you can do justice to the book of Job if you do not somehow find yourself in that book. Gail and I were married five years. We wanted very much to be parents. We'd had no success becoming parents. We'd had test after test run, and finally a physician said to us, maybe you should consider adoption. And so we contacted the Methodist Mission Home in San Antonio, Texas, they put us through more tests, including psychological ones. They made a home visit. We had to make a visit at the home in San Antonio. We were put on a waiting list. And ten months later, we got a call that a little girl had been born. And we were supposed to pick her up on Friday morning at 10 a.m. I don't know a child who could have been more loved or wanted. 
first grandchild on either side of the family, four excited grandparents. Gail and I were thrilled beyond measure. We took her to church that very first Sunday. We wanted everybody to see this wonderful baby that had come into our lives. She was 11 days old the first time she went to church, and she went every week. She was hugged at least 100 times a day, told how much she was loved at least 100 times a day, prayed with every time she ate, prayed with just before we tucked her in at night. She was baptized. She was given a third grader Bible. She was confirmed at 12 years of age at a church member's house. Uh, She experimented with a little tobacco, a little alcohol. On another visit, we discovered later, a little marijuana. That led to a little cocaine. As soon as Gail and I found out what was going on, we tried to find the best counselor we could in Beaumont, Texas. We were told that a woman professor at Lamar University was the best in the city. We took our Allison to her. The woman helped Gail and me a lot. Allison paid no attention whatsoever. She changed absolutely nothing. When she was 15, my bishop down in Texas told me he wanted me to nominate me to the Bishop of Oklahoma to come be the new pastor at Boston Avenue. I called this counselor of ours. I said, if, if, if we were called, if we decided to go to Tulsa, what would that do to our daughter? Probably nothing, she said. Probably nothing. It should give her a whole new beginning. It probably will not. Let's be perfectly honest. She's not done anything we've asked her to do. She's not stopped doing anything we've asked her not to do. I would have a session with her, she said, and tell her about this wonderful new beginning, but it probably wouldn't change a thing. You do what God's leading you to do, what you think's best for your family. When Bishop Milhouse called, I told him we would come. Our counselor said she'll probably find drugs in Tulsa within three days. She did in the in the chapel choir. A chapel choir member started supplying her with drugs, we found out later. It was a horrible 4th of July, just after she turned 16. We were with a big group of my family, and my dad discovered on the way home that our daughter had lifted $80 out of his wallet. One of the women discovered that her wedding ring, engagement ring set, were not in her purse. Allison had seen her take them off to wash dishes and she had followed into the next room and taken them out of the purse to feed her drug habit. We didn't know that she had taken pills out of any number of purses around that day. And so by the time we got home to Tulsa, the phone was ringing telling us about all these missing items. And surely enough, she had them all. It was a bad night. Finally, about 10.30, we all went off to bed, and just before 11, she was in our bedroom screaming that she had taken a handful of pills but didn't really want to die. And Gail said she would stay with our two little boys if I would take Allison to the emergency room, and I took her to St. John's Hospital, 11 o'clock at night. You know how emergency rooms usually function? We were there eight hours. They gave her something to make her throw up. That's when I was really praying for Gail. Gail does that a lot better than I do, holding heads of people who are throwing up. I don't do very well holding people's heads who are throwing up. I usually want to throw up at the same time. And we went into the bathroom and back and into the bathroom and back and into the bathroom and back. And finally, at 7 o'clock on Sunday morning, a doctor who had never seen me in his life said, Mr. Biggs, We've been monitoring her pulse and her blood pressure, and you can take her home now. 
but have you ever thought about taking this child to Sunday school and church? (laughs) Sufferers attract fixers like roadkill attracts vultures. And they use and misuse the Word of God. The best way to tell is if you feel worse when they leave than you did when they arrived. Number three. Dr. Eugene Peterson also says in his commentary, the book of Job is the book more than any other in the whole Bible that reminds us there are moments in life when there are no simple answers. There are no simple answers. Elizabeth Sherrill writes in her spiritual autobiography that she grew up in a family that didn't go to church. They didn't pray. They didn't talk about God. And she ended up falling in love with and marrying the son of a seminary professor. Her new father-in-law was professor, Union Theological Seminary in New York City, Dr. Tankersley's alma mater. One of the best-known, most beloved professors in that whole seminary Elizabeth said she was married to John for several years. They had moved to upstate New York, and one night they got a call that John's father had died. Very suddenly, he and John's mother had gone down the street from their apartment there in New York City, had eaten and started back to their apartment. It was lightly snowing. When they got back to the apartment, John's mother had said to the husband, why don't I make us a good cup of hot tea before we go to bed? He thought that'd be a great idea. She went in the kitchen when she came in with the cup of tea. He had had a heart attack and died so suddenly, so unexpectedly. So Elizabeth and John got the call that his father had died and they drove through that snow into New York. Elizabeth said, I I didn't know just what people did. What do people do when somebody they love dies? And she said, we finally got off to bed the next morning. We were hardly up when the doorbell rang and there stood Dr. Reinhold Niebuhr one of the truly outstanding Christian professors of the last century. He and Dr. Sherrill had taught right down the hall from each other for years. Reinhold Niebuhr's big fat book, The Nature and Destiny of Men, we were still reading when I was in seminary. He was that kind of esteemed scholar. And she said, oh, this man, he will know what to do. He walked in and hugged my mother-in-law, just said, Helen. Then he turned and hugged John, whom he had known since he was a boy. John, he said, He shook my hand, and then he sat down. Just four of us, she said. We looked at him. He looked at us. There was a clock in the room. Tick, tick, tick. Five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five, thirty minutes passed. No one had said a word. He stood up. Helen, John, Elizabeth stood up. He walked over and hugged Helen. He hugged John, shook Elizabeth's hand, walked out the door, and disappeared. Our daughter died when she was 31. Her habit didn't get better, it got worse. Eventually it was cocaine, crack cocaine, methamphetamines. She went out the window down a tree and and, and went in the middle of the night. Never lived at home with us after she was just past 16 years of age. We saw her from time to time through the years. She finally was in California. She told her mom just a couple of days before she died on the telephone that she'd been trying, trying really hard in AA and Narcotics Anonymous to make it 30 days, to get a 30-day chip 
And she had never been able to go 30 days since she was 12 years old. We got a call on that Sunday afternoon that they had found her out in Oakland, California. A mix of alcohol and drug had stopped her heart. We had to get Jason. He was just weeks from graduating medical doctor from OU. Trey and his family in Birmingham, Alabama at the time. Trey had a very good and responsible job there. Our sons had done so wonderfully well. My parents, Gail's parents, aunts and uncles, we had to call all these people. We finally got to bed late that Sunday night. The next morning, our doorbell rang. I put on a robe over my pajamas and went to the door. And one of the surgeons in our church was standing at the door. I opened the door and he just grabbed me. And he squeezed me right up against him. It's one of those kind of hugs where you could feel his heart beating. I'm sure he could hear mine, feel mine as well. He must have squeezed me 30 seconds or so. And then he turned me loose. And he walked out to his car and drove on to St. John's Hospital. I've never forgotten it. It helped me. It helped Gail when I told her what had happened. But there were no simple answers. Number four, if with all your heart you truly seek me. Rabbi Herman Shalman stood in this very pulpit and told us about his mother's dying at Dachau. His father being put to death by the Nazis in Munich prison. He was a student here in the United States. Herman was because all colleges and universities were closed to Jews in Nazi Germany. He was not allowed to go home until the war was over and he went to Dachau. He looked all around this concentration camp where his mother had died and finally went out beyond the buildings where the grass was the greenest he thought he'd ever seen in his life. Other Jews, he said, were struggling with the Holocaust. Some had said, there is no God. No God would have let six and a half million of us die. Some said, well, maybe there is a God, but if so, he's not involved. He's not a part of what's going on. He said, I was struggling. I was looking for some answer. Suddenly, I started to cry. He said, and I just fell down on my knees and my hands went down into that soft, soft soil I remember thinking, how could this be so porous? And then I realized this grass was being fertilized with the cremains of thousands and thousands of Jews of my, my mother. And I realized that the death of every Jewish child had broken the heart of God. The death of every Jewish teenager had broken the heart of God. The death of every man and woman had broken the heart of God. And he had called me to help fix his heart. And he looked out at all of us and said, but who am I to tell you about the God of the broken heart? And he sat down.